today is August 11th, and I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator with the University of Minnesota Extension. Earlier this morning, we recorded our 16th episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 7.30 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Today's webinar was moderated by myself and Jared Goplin. On the webinar were guests Tom Peters, extension agronomist specializing in sugar beets and weed science at the North Dakota State University and University of Minnesota, and Devlin Sarangi, extension weed scientist with the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics at the University of Minnesota in St. Paul. The guests and moderators discussed reviewing your 2021 weed control efforts in adapting and making changes for better weed control in future years. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current crop situations as well as crop and pest management topics. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to today's Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Uh, my name is Jared Goplin. I'm an Extension Educator in Crops with the University of Minnesota uh, Extension, and we're here today to talk a little bit about weed management recap and some of the things that are going on this year. So kind of as I hand it over to Ryan to introduce our guests, uh, if you want to practice that Q&A box at the bottom, uh, if you guys would please uh, kind of put in some of your observations, uh, you know, what weeds are you seeing come through the canopy, uh, you know, what products worked well this year, uh, what are you seeing as escapes, uh, just to kind of help paint a picture of what's going on uh, across the state this year. So with that, Ryan. Yeah, well, thanks, Jared. And yeah, again, encouraging to ask those questions. You know, if you had a shortcoming, maybe give us a, a question about why something didn't work and uh, and we can maybe follow up and, and try to get more detail and then maybe come up, propose some ideas on, on why things didn't work for you or kind of fell short. But to introduce our guest today, Jared, we've got Devlin Sarangi, the Dr. Devlin Sarangi, a weed scientist, extension weed scientist at the University of Minnesota, uh, and uh, Dr. Tom Peters, who is uh, a North Dakota State University as well as U of M uh, weed scientist uh, working in the sugar beet world over there in West Central and uh, Northwestern Minnesota, as, as well as in the Dakotas. So welcome to our guest uh, this morning. Um, I just wanted to make a couple of brief comments that I think, Jared, we were talking earlier about. This is the perfect time of year to get out and do some kind of post-mortem evaluation of your, your weed management for the season. So get out into your fields and kind of do some evaluating of what weeds I might be seeing and taking some notes. You know, uh, I like personally like kind of mapping out, uh, you know, where problems are occurring so I can kind of maybe target more robust solutions in the future uh, to those areas, but uh, keeping notes on what you're seeing and then making some notes on what products were used, what rates were used, uh, carrier volume, some of the weather conditions at the time of application. I think all those things are gonna help you kind of fine tune uh, your weed management or weed control operations in future years. So you can maybe have uh, better success. So. I know we've we mentioned some of the things we've been noticing this year. It seemed, uh, I'll just make a couple of quick comments here, seemed to be kind of the year of the grass. I know uh, uh, woolly crop grass is one that a number of people have had some challenges with that just kept, uh, kept coming this year. And even some of our most robust uh, herbicide programs, you know, we're, we're decent relative to not controlling them, but certainly, uh, weren't uh, weren't a hundred percent. So, so uh, that was one particular weed that kind of sticks out. Um, uh, a, a lot of 
people have been mentioning velvet leaf this year. Again, seeing some some challenges with velvet leaf. Uh, lamb's quarter is always one that's uh, that gives us some challenge. Uh, and then other big comments that I've had this year, um, seeing some antagonism with volunteer control, volunteer corn control uh, with your post programs. Um, that's another kind of comment. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is folks that waited too long to spray uh, any of our growth regulator technologies on the water head, it's just slow to die and it, it, it doesn't seem to work as well as we target uh, you know, really small weeds. So those are just a couple of observations and comments that I'll, I'll make kind of get things, throw them out there. And then maybe we pass the mic to Devlin or Tom, would you like to follow up? Go ahead, Devlin. Yeah, so... Uh... I agree with you, uh, Ryan. This year, uh, I have also seen a lot of woolly cupgrass, and uh, uh, I have seen couple like a couple of weeks back in July, there were some new emergence too. So um, yeah, I have never uh, expected that because usually uh, woolly cupgrass emergence is earlier, like that ends somewhere in June. But I saw emergence in July this year. So that is uh, one of the good observation. And also I have seen some uh, questions uh, this year. I got some questions about Liberty application. So um, with uh, extend flex and enlist and uh, Liberty link soybean, uh, people are uh, tend to use a lot of Liberty on uh, soybean. But I got uh, like I got multiple questions like why Liberty is not working well this year. So that might be related to a few things. Number one, uh, we had a severe drought this year and some of the part in Minnesota still we have uh, exceptional drought going on. And, uh, you know, Liberty likes um, uh, humidity and uh, uh, like uh, hot weather may favor Liberty activities, but humidity also you need. So that is another thing. And sometimes, you know, uh, some kind of um, uh, other things like uh, I would say carrier volume, like uh, if you have like uh, dry weather and you, you have plenty of weeds, go with 20 gallons per acre, not even 15. Like I would go with 20 gallons per acre. And nozzle selection is another important thing. Like I know um, I, I talked with a few people and sometimes they spread uh, Liberty with TTI nozzle because they're mostly extend flex grower. They are using TTI nozzle for dicamba. So uh, they're using uh, TTI nozzle for Liberty, which is... Uh, Liberty does not like TTI nozzle. It will give you bigger uh, droplets and uh, you'll not get optimum weed control. So we got a question about Liberty and a lot of drought question, carryover question. So maybe today, uh, Tom, you major, we can discuss these things uh, in this uh, session. So, so Devlin, a couple of things uh, that I want to kind of ask you about or maybe make comment about. So there are a couple of biological kind of components to liberty and making liberty work. I mean, you know, weed size for sure. And then if we're in droughty conditions, I mean, some weed species tend to kind of harden off and maybe maybe could be present a bigger challenge to, to get good control with the contact product like that. I don't know if you guys want to mention anything there or what you might consider to, to make it work better in, under those scenarios. Or if we just need to really target the very small weeds with that particular program and, you know, which is certainly the recommendation, but uh, you know, what about, what about when a 
uh, weeds exposed to really dry, droughty conditions and, and maybe more difficult to control. Is there anything we can do to? Yeah, uh, no, I totally agree with you. And I saw this thing with lamb squatters this year. Like we have a lot of lamb squatters that escaped liberty and they're kind of like top part is burnt and then they're branching from the bottom. So I have seen this thing this year. And uh, I believe again, uh, maybe um, if you want to use liberty, uh, think about the humidity, how much you, humidity you got and also use AMS with that and um, um, maybe go with smaller weeds because that's easy to knock off rather than spraying even which is five inch, six inch tall because uh, Liberty, uh, we have seen like uh, if it is less than three inch, it's the best idea to control with Liberty. If it is more than four inch, um, we have hard time to control even in a regular year. And this year was like dry and low humidity and Delta T was high and all these, uh, uh, you know, all these unfavorable conditions for Liberty applications. So I want to summarize so far, everything we've talked about, we can, we can call it spray quality related topics. So spray quality has to do with the size of droplets, the spray volume, our weed targets, and maybe characteristics of the surface of our weed top, our targets, the adjuvants that we use, and how they interact with herbicides. And I, Jared, I think we need to challenge everybody to spend at least part of the off season to learn more about spray quality, because certainly spray quality in the dry year was different than what we've seen in previous years. Yeah, Tom, to, to quote one of the things I jotted down when I was talking to you the other day, we need to go back to school was what you had said uh, earlier this week. And I think that's true. I mean, really for all of us, because this, this year, if you think back to June, and that's why I encourage, I always encourage people to take good notes on weather conditions at application. Because then when you're doing these postmortems, going back and looking, you know, okay, you can go look and see, well, the humidity was really low. Uh, when I was spraying Liberty. A lot of times we talk about Liberty liking these hot conditions, right? But, you know, we don't talk about the humidity usually because typically we have decent humidity levels. But, you know, this year was just kind of odd with some of the weather conditions. And, um, you know, going back and reflecting on that and, you know, thinking about the adjuvants we used and all those types of things, I think are, are important considerations. Tom, there are some other, obviously, uh, things uh, that come up, especially you being in, in Western Minnesota where, you know, the droughty conditions have been more persistent. Uh, we talked a little bit about PPI. Uh, you said you had some sugar beet growers that have had made some interesting comments to you in, in recent history about using, uh, you know, these pre-plant incorporated, uh, basically incorporating these herbicides rather than just relying on, you know, on rainfall. So I know you want to summarize some of those and some of your thoughts and what you've seen in some of your research trials recently this year. So I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to make a pretty provocative statement, Jared, I think, and we're, we're coming out of a dry year, but I want to state that soil applied herbicides are more important than ever. And part of it is some of the things that we were talking about with controlling post-emergence or controlling weeds post-emergence. But um, I, I saw surprisingly good weed control from soil residual herbicides. Now, like you said, uh, in, in my case in West Central Minnesota, the Northwest part of the state, 
there was a lot of herbicide that was incorporated. Okay. Um, there were advantages to incorporating herbicide, but you can't get it too deep. Um, I think in some of my own plots, we lost control of the early emerging weeds because they germinated and emerged on top of my herbicide. So you can't get soil residual herbicides too deep if you choose to incorporate them. The second thing I wanna say is, um, especially in 2021, herbicides, soil residual herbicides in a layered program, layering them made a big difference compared to a single application. And for me, it's, you know, it's analogous to selling grain. You know, how do you decide when to sell grain? But if, if you can sell grain um, a little bit over time, it seems like it reduces the exposure you have and that's the way it, I think spraying soil residual herbicides work as well. Did anyone notice anything? Um, you know, we, we were talking earlier about Liberty. When we added residuals with that, say some of the group 15 products, uh, certainly we, we see more crop response. So some more injury when we put a lot of Liberty on with a residual product. Did anyone notice anything with weed control uh, and having any kind of impact with say you put a dual in with a Liberty or just seeing that crop response because it, it tends to look more ugly, I guess, when, when we put those products in there. Although like Tom said, I totally agree. It's a necessary thing to do. So if we're putting out a Liberty application, you need to put the residual with it. So I have a story for you, Ryan. A few years ago, my bear rep, I was asking about mixing oil-based products with, with Liberty. And my bear rep said, don't do it. Oils make Liberty hot. And I said, yeah, but I'm using Liberty tolerant soybeans. And he says, don't do it. Uh, Liberty makes, uh, makes uh, oil, our oil-based products make Liberty hot. And that's exactly what I experienced in that situation. So I think maybe that's what you've been observing. Maybe that increased phytoactivity you get from Liberty um, combined with oil-based products in, in soybeans. You know, one of the things I guess in our chat and, and, and the uh, question box that's come up is volunteer corn. Interestingly, uh, you know, there's a, a number of mentions, uh, you know, of some water hemp coming through some velvet leaf this year in different areas. Uh, some success using, you know, like authority first and Liberty and dual uh, post, uh, you know, maybe getting at some of those phytotoxic uh, comments that you just had made, but one of the problems have been has been this volunteer corn, and um, you know I know there's been some work, Tom, up at uh, North Dakota that Joe's done on mixing or actually getting volunteer corn control, um, you know, with some of these mixes because we do have some significant uh, antagonism there. So, um, you know, Devlin, I guess we haven't gone to you for a bit. You wanna, you know, what's what's going on with this volunteer corn? You know, obviously there's there's uh, some traits out there. If you planted enlist corn, maybe you forgot that uh, you know you have to use certain products, but um, you know, what, you know, what, what do we need to do there to make this work a little bit better? Because, uh, corn rootworm and those types of things are going to be a problem, um, you know, going forward, if we can't control that volunteer corn. Sure. So, uh, first of all, let's address this tank mixing growth regulator, like Dicamba 240 with any of this corn, volunteer corn killer or grass killer, like Select Max or Azure 2. 
So uh, yeah, my colleague Joe Eichley, he has done a research um, and also some other states that research has been done. So when you tank mix uh, uh, this corn, uh, volunteer corn killer, grass killer with uh, growth regulator, you have to increase the rate of this um, grass killer to get optimum control because there is an antagonism going on when you tank mix this growth regulator with um, this grass killer. So that is uh, uh, pretty established now. So if you want to uh, tank mix, you have to increase the rate of your grass killer uh, period. So then second thing that you mentioned about um, enlisted corn. Yeah, so enlisted corn is uh, tolerant to Azure 2, which is your FOP. And uh, I don't, I don't think many uh, growers are still growing enlist corn, but in case if you have grown uh, enlist corn last year or this year, uh, you may see some uh, volunteer corn from that uh, enlist corn. And next year, uh, if you go with uh, soybean and if you spray Azure 2, it is expected that um, that enlist, like volunteer enlist corn will survive Azure 2. So make sure that you are going with uh, DEMs rather than FOPs like Clethodeme or Select Max than uh, going with the FOPs. I, I want to reinforce the comment about mixing, mixing the group one herbicides with oxen herbicides. So a few years ago, I took some group, a group of farmers to Nebraska to look at Palmer Amaranth. And we, we saw a lot of Palmer, no doubt about it. But we also saw a lot of volunteer corn, and that's because they were missing the volunteer corn when they were mixing the dicamba together with whatever product they were using. So I think that's a real critical observation that you made, Dublin. I know in this area, there's been a lot of people that have actually started making a second application, which, you know, in many cases, it, it is a better, uh, you know, you do get better control, but um, actually, you know, spending that ex extra time and fuel to, to go across to the field again, just so they can, you know, get by with a little bit lower rate um, and get good control yet. I know that's been a, a concern in some fields, uh, even using some of those higher rates this, the last couple of years. Uh, Jared, in regards Jared, I'd like to talk about something different, you know, talking about the year and, and maybe planning ahead. And Ryan made a, a comment about taking good note. So document what prod programs, what herbicides you used in your fields. Um, I think we've got to start thinking about carryover. Most of our herbicides are broken down by microbes. Well, microbes are on the surface and they need water. You know, they need water to multiply. Well, in a lot of areas, and especially in my area, we haven't had any rain yet. So we're not getting any microbial breakdown. I, I think it's critical that we take good notes about what products we use, and we may need to start reevaluating the crop rotations depending on what weather occurs between now and uh, plant 22. But I, I could see crop carryover becoming a very, very important topic as we transition into the next season. So Tom, what, what actives are you most concerned with? Um, well, potential? I, 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 um, I think there's several, but I'll just start by, by calling out 
the products that contain clopyrrolid, which is an oxen herbicide in sugar bee country, we call that stinger. Stinger is a remarkable herbicide. It's, 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 it does a good job, uh, especially on common ragweed, but we have some challenges, especially when we increase the rate for, for example, giant ragweed control. Um, we have concerns about carryover to soybeans, for example, in the crop rotation. So that would be one to start the conversation off on. Um, maybe some of the longer residual PPO herbicides, maybe that's a, they're an example of one we have to take a look at as we um, put our list together. And you're most concerned then with rotating back into soybeans, I assume. Yeah, and I think it's gonna depend on what, uh, what the scenario is for the farmer. Um, but don't assume because the tables say there's no rotational restriction that we may have concerns um, as we transition into 22 because of how limited amount of rainfall that, that we received. Most of our labels or a lot of our labels, I shouldn't say most, indicate you need a certain amount of rain. And I think we take that for granted a little bit. And I'll use Lattice as an example of that. Lattice says we need 15 inches of rain. Well, I think everybody assumes we're going to get 15 inches of rain. Don't assume that and, and make sure you're, you're uh, investigating um, what the crop uh, restrictions, crop rotation restrictions might be for your products that you use. So, Devlin, what about, uh, and I don't know what you were about to say, but I was going to ask you then about flumestipin. I know uh, that's kind of one that I tend to see a little bit more of on the, the eastern part of the state, I guess. Uh, and I, a lot of that's attributable to people not following that 10 month uh, restriction. They, you know, tend to see pretty good crop safety with that, that product, um, you know, less injury. And so there's a, a kind of a, a desire to kind of stick with it as long as possible, but it does have that 10 month interval. And if we get late June, you know, and, and, and into July, certainly if you're thinking about planting corn the next year, you can't, uh, you shouldn't be using that product to, to avoid any kind of risk of injury. But I, I don't know if you want to make more comments about Fomestin. Yeah, so I got a couple calls this year about Fomazofen carryover from last year to corn, uh, this year's corn. And uh, I mean, none of them are really severe uh, situation, um, but considering this year's uh, dry weather, I assume this carryover thing may continue. And uh, yeah, I mean, Fomazofen carryover is a pretty common thing in the Midwest. I mean, I got my PhD in Nebraska. I saw that same thing in Nebraska because um, there was uh, severe droughts in a couple of years. And uh, I saw the exact same thing uh, carry over to corn. And uh, this year there is a potential. Yes. You know, so one I of the comments, you know, Ryan, that comes up, and I think I'm going to direct this one at you, this, this question on cover crops. Uh, you know, carryover is a concern, you know, even for our row crop production going into next year. What about the use of cover crops? Um, you know, I know we've had, you've had that trial down in Rochester. 
uh, the last couple of years looking at, uh, you know, that's more inner seating. Uh, but, you know, are there some programs that kind of hit the sweet spot of maybe doing a good job of controlling your weeds, but also are light enough on the cover crops that they can, uh, can survive? Well, Jared, it's, it's a, it's kind of a legal question when it comes back to cover crops. If you want to, if you want to create cover for the purposes of soil health or protection against erosion, you're certainly welcome to try whatever you want to try and take that risk on, on yourself. But if you intend to use a cover crop for grazing or, or forage of some sort, certainly then your hands are tied with the, in terms of uh, the residue tolerance is not being established and, and really just can't, you really have to pay attention to that part of the label and look at that. And, and there aren't very good options out there for really robust herbicide weed management and use of cover crops if you're going to use that cover crop for more than just a cover for, for getting into those you know, where I'm going to start to feed it that, you know, there are some products, uh, but certainly it would make uh, some of the weed scientists probably cringe uh, if we talked about, you know, strictly using glyphosate or, uh, you know, you can use some kicksores and one of them that sticks out in my mind that uh, there are some, you know, but they're limited. They're not as robust of a herbicide program. And, uh, and certainly I think, I think we'd be cautioned against just uh, relying on those uh, components solely because uh, we probably wouldn't expect real great weed control, particularly in the world of herbicide-resistant weed. Um, but that's my comments. I don't know, Jared, if you've got experience with uh, personally doing some cover cropping and, and herbicide plans that you've been using. You know, it's one of those things, your comment on the forage or the cover crop, you know, grazing anything is where, you know, things get tricky, you know, are actually a little bit clearer, honestly, because you know, then you have to listen to the label anytime you're harvesting any of those crops. But if you're just doing it as a green manure crop, it's kind of, you know, at your own risk. Obviously, nobody wants to spend money on a cover crop and then none of it grows. But, you know, we can kind of get an idea of what's going to make it, um, you know, as long as you're just leaving it out there as a green manure crop. Unfortunately, this book has been on my desk, if you can even see it, the herbicide handbook. That's kind of the Bible on, you know, degradation and all kinds of fun uh quote unquote, fun things about herbicides. But, um, you know, it is a question that comes up quite frequently now. There's not a good answer. Every program is going to be unique, but, you know, thankfully, thankfully, you know, you do have some options uh, on just trying things out uh, if, if you're just using it as a green manure. And Jared, I guess, I guess one, one last comment for me is that we've, I've never really had experience in an exceptionally dry year, uh, but I would say that certainly We've cover cropped uh, a fair number of uh, areas and, and had really pretty good experience with the cereal rye. It seems to be the workforce that will tolerate quite a bit of that. Uh, different herbicide programs, I guess, and, and, and establish a pretty reasonable cover. Uh, and some of the herbicide labels now have actually got some information about cover crops, some, some general kind of recommendations, but it becomes difficult because in a year like this year, in Southeast, well, we've been below normal um, a precip for the season. Uh, we've certainly had adequate soil moisture. And so, you know, we're very different from the Western part of the state or from Iowa or Wisconsin or Illinois. I mean, there, there's, you know, it's, it's gotta be a difficult thing to write a, a recommendation around a product that's gonna be used over such a wide, Devlin, were you going to say something? 
Yeah, so I was going to tell the same thing. Like most of the herbicide label does not include cover crop for like rotation restrictions, but um, more and more herbicide levels are now coming up with cover crop, cover crop rotation restrictions nowadays. So that is a good thing. But at the same time, I would uh, agree with Lee's comment, like, it is always better to, uh, if you are planning to use cover crop, it is always better to use herbicide with less residual activities, because once you have more residual activities and which is uh, tends to carry over to your next crop, uh, probably that may hurt your cover crops too. One thing I want to add in, in this conversation is some of the universities are printing tables that give you an idea of how long the residue might last and provide some guidance. And I would encourage the listeners to look locally. So those tables or the length of carryover is going to be very dependent on local conditions. So if you go to Pennsylvania, to look at some of their research because they do a lot of cover crop work, I will tell you that those, those restrictions are gonna be much different in Minnesota, North Dakota, just because of our local environmental conditions. So look local if you can. Um, I know Wisconsin does some of that work. Um, Iowa State does. Uh, my colleague, uh, Kirk Howitt and Michael Osley have tried to do that in North Dakota look at some of their recommendations. Good point. Thank you. So we are kind of getting down on our time. There's a couple of things that I still want to touch on. Uh, before we do that, I do want to thank Lucas for the green manure coming from Cow's Common. I appreciate that. Um, there is a question here, though, on uh, glyphosate helping or hindering the effectiveness of Liberty. So more of a specific question. Um, I'm not sure, Tom or, or Deblin, any experience mixing those two and comments uh, in regards to that? I don't have any experience. So Devlin, how about you? So this year uh, in one of the trials, we mixed uh, Roundup with uh, Liberty and I didn't see any synergism or antagonism. I mean, it was just like a little bit better control than individual one. So uh, I, I cannot comment really because this is just one year of experience that we had and it is not even a crop situation, it was a bare ground trial. So really I cannot make a comment, but usually usually they say don't tank mix a uh, systemic herbicide with contact herbicide because their activities are different. But again, like uh, with these two, I don't have really any comments. Not sure, Ryan, have you, have you done anything in Rochester, Ryan? We did a small demonstration study in 2019 that, uh, you know, we weren't setting up to try to, to challenge either product, but we did the different combinations before, after, and tank mix and sprayed very small weeds and had very good success regardless of the strategy we used. So again, looking at trying to be successful, so small weeds under that, uh, you know, two to three inch tall Weeds, it, it didn't seem to matter. Again, that was just one small demonstration. Uh, but we, if we set out to do it right, we ended up having success regardless of our product and product choice. 
Tom, what were you planning to say? Well, I wanted to I wanted to make sure we address Paul's question um, about common ragweed. So I'll I'll start this one off. So Paul's asking about controlling uh, common ragweed in soybean, and he's using the enlist trait. And I I'm going to just say this: common ragweed is a lot like water hemp in that it takes a program approach to control it. So it's not just what Paul's doing in soybean, but whatever uh, crops that he's growing in rotation with soybean. Um, the seed is has a relatively long lifetime in, in soil. So you have to work on controlling common ragweed year after year in all the crops that you grow. Just to start off the soybean conversation, I think you've got to use a soil residual herbicide. And I would start with one of the PPO inhibitors, um, um, Fear Sharpen or um, um, Spartan Authority products if, if they work in your rotation. You know, Tom, I know one of the issues there with the, especially the pre's that seem to work well on common ragweed is you get into that herbicide rotational restriction issues with, or carryover issues with, with going to sugar beets. Absolutely. And you've got to plan them out. I mean, that's one of these where you've got to get your paper and pencil out and see how you can map it out to make the math work. And unfortunately, um, I'd love to use authority products, but they don't work particularly well in some of the rotations that we have. I just put a link in the chat that uh, does link to our efficacy table, kind of a cheat sheet, I guess, that has some, some additional references to, to some of those. And we are getting really close on time, but Tom, we've got to talk about stubble weed control. We just put out, a, you just uh, had written that crop news uh, as well as the crop and pest report. Um, what are your favorites uh, for controlling stubble weeds this year, uh, specifically in small grains, but also if you think about areas in the Southern part of the state, that might have uh, you know peas or other canning crops that might be coming off that they need to con consider weed control as well. I think the old standby is combining glyphosate with 2,4-D. So either ester or amine, depending on who your neighbors are. Um, that's the old standby. In my research, we generally get broadleaf weed control um, with that program. It takes a little longer, but we get there. We get 80% control plus. The one that I really like a lot is combining Sharpen with glyphosate. Sharpen. And I'm using MSO with that one. It's a remarkable product. One ounce of Sharpen. That's all you need. And we get, we've seen really good broadleaf weed control, um, water hemp control. The only thing I want to say though, Jared, is I have some reservations about using Sharpen in 2021 because of how dry it is, which gets into some of the previous conversations. So one alternative that we're, we're looking at and talking about is using Gramoxone or, or Paraquat products in combination with 2,4-D on bigger weeds or Gramoxone alone on, on smaller weeds. So again, a program where you see very fast results and a very efficacious program. 
So three choices, Jared, depending on your situation. One note there, there is, Tom, there is some additional training or certification that's needed for using Vermoxone now. I that is that correct. Rule that, that changed correct. a couple of years ago. So something, if you're interested in doing that, make sure you uh, partake of that. So something. Thank that, you, for, you know, for adding that, Ryan. Well, I think we better wrap up our program for the day today. So thank you, Dublin. Thank you, Tom, for being on. Uh, I think that was a, a fun discussion to have today. If you have additional questions, uh, any of our attendees, uh, feel free to send, a, send us an email. Uh, they're easy to find. They're in the chat box as well. Uh, if you can't join future sessions, we'll be back again next Wednesday morning at 730. Uh, and uh, if you can't join us, please feel free to tune into those podcasts. Uh, those have been listed in the chat as well. And uh, if you have some additional questions or comments, uh, we can hang on here for a couple more minutes uh, if you're too shy to ask as the, the larger group. Um, so with that, thanks for attending and see you back next week.